He died for a purpose. He died for you. He died for me so that he could transform our lives and give us a, a new beginning. And we praise God for life change, that life change made possible because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we come together and celebrate today. So happy Easter and uh, praise God that the tomb was empty, that Jesus is risen and he's on the throne ruling and reigning today and desires to rule and reign in your heart. And that's the life change that we oftentimes experience as we surrender to him and he takes over our lives. And Lord willing for you today will be a day of life change, whether you're watching online here with us in Theater 9 or over in Theater 14, I want to say welcome. Thank you so much for being here. If you're a guest with us, I want to give you a special welcome. Uh, maybe you haven't been here for a while, or maybe today's your first time. If you wouldn't mind taking out your worship program, you'll learn some things about us as a church. But if you take it as well and fill out the connection card that's in there, and take that to the first-time guest kiosk on your way out today, we've got a special gift that we want to give you today, just to let you know that we appreciate you coming here, that we love you. It's just a tangible way for us to say thank you. And then also, when you fill that card out, we make a donation to another ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking. And so you literally could help change a life by filling that card out today. So if you do that for us, turn it in at the First Time Guest Kiosk. That'd be a wonderful blessing for us. And today we're going to start a series called New Beginnings. It's only going to be four weeks long. So I challenge you, if you're here today, to be with us over the next three weeks after this. So kind of a four-week challenge to continue to come and be here at the movie theater. We'll be here at 9 o'clock, 10.30 every week. And uh, we would love to have you, whether you're a guest or you've just been gone for a little while and you're back or you're a regular attender, and talking about these new beginnings we can have in Christ. And I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump into the series. Let me pray. Father God, we are so grateful that your son, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. And we can celebrate that even on a daily basis. But today, being a special day, we recognize that after two days of being in the tomb on that third day that your son, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead, did something that had never been done before, that by the power of the Spirit, that tomb was empty and uh, bewilderment and confusion and all the things that happened for the disciples, that you use that to bring new life and a new beginning, and you offer us that same new beginning today. God, we rejoice in that. I pray for those that need to come to know you as their Savior. I pray that today would be a day of salvation. I pray for those of us who do know you, that you transformed us, that we've made that decision, God, that you would renew us in our relationship with you, renew us in our minds, renew us in our hearts, renew us even in our commitment to you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it's great to be back preaching again. I took a couple weeks off, was on vacation with my family. A couple weeks ago, right after the service, I headed out the back door. And my wife and I hopped in our minivan with our, our four daughters. We've got four little girls, so lots of curly hair and screams and frills and all that stuff at our house. They're all under six years old, and they all love princesses. And so we headed to the princess mecca of the world in Orlando, Florida. Disney World. And we met up with uh, one of our other pastors, John Cullen. He's our connections pastor. And he's got three little girls that are all under six years old as well. And so we had seven mini princesses and we went to Disney World together. And so it was an amazing experience. I don't know if you've ever been there before or not, but they try to make it like a fantasy land. Like everything's perfect. Everybody's smiling. They say, have a magical day or welcome home. It's like, I don't live here. What are you talking about? You know, they got the sign that says, let the memories begin here. And I say, I'm very literal sometimes. I say, I'm supposed to forget everything before this moment. I think, what happens here? But they've got all these things to try and make it feel like fantasy world. Not fantasy world to me though, just so you know, because my fantasies are better than Disney world because in my fantasies, I don't sweat. <laughs> in my fantasies, I don't push a double stroller around for what seems like 10 miles, okay? And, and in my fantasies, kids aren't crying and people aren't melting down and all. And no matter how many times I say, there's no crying at Disney, there's still, you know, seven kids at the same, t- at the same time. And so what ended up happening is, was I became incredibly grateful for when we would stop and we would sit down. When I was younger, it was just like, ride, rides, wait 60 minutes, ride 60 seconds. It was amazing. But that's not my fantasy world anymore, okay? So what I was thankful for now 
is when we just stop and we'd watch a show. And they're doing performances all over the place all the time. And one of the shows that we stopped and watched was so fun. Maybe you've seen the movie before. Maybe you've been to Disney and seen them reenact this. But Beauty and the Beast... The Princess Belle, she's got this yellow dress, and it doesn't make sense in a short version, but she falls in love with the wild beast, this animal that's there, and he was a prince, but he had a spell cast over him, and if he doesn't fall in love by the time he's 21 years old, he'll forever be a beast. What ends up happening is, she starts to like the beast the more she spends time with him, but there's this other guy that's pursuing her named Gaston. I don't know if you know Gaston or not, but he's, you know, big and burly and handsome, he's a hunter and does all these things, and all the other girls in town like him, Belle doesn't like him at all. And she starts to fall in love with this beast. The climactic scene in the movie is when Gaston gets the town all riled up to go kill the beast. And he starts singing a song, we'll kill the beast. And they're talking about his monstrous appetite and running off with kids in the night and all this stuff. And they go to the castle and there's this big battle scene. And what happens is Gaston sneaks up on the beast and shoots him in the back. Now, the beast is kind of depressed at this moment. Not because he got shot in the back or because Belle's not around. And he thought that she's gone and she's not coming back. And so he just, he's going to let Gaston kill him. He shoots him in the back, and he kicks him, and he gets over to the edge of the castle. He's about to push him over the edge, and then he hears the voice of his woman, the beast. You know, apparently that's what she still calls him, even though she's in love with him. But she, the beast doesn't seem like an affectionate term to me. But anyway, she says, the beast. And now he's got the strength to fight. And so then the, what happens, it goes back and forth. The beast starts fighting Gaston. Gaston's fighting the beast. He hides on him. It's raining. It's dark. As all this stuff starts happening. And it gets to this point where the beast has Gaston, where he can kill him. And he's holding him over the edge of the castle. And all he has to do is drop him. And Gaston, this big burly guy, is begging for his life. And then it like dawns on the beast that he's kind and gentle. And he just grabs him and he throws him down and he says, get out of here. And he climbs over to his princess and he's going up to see her. And it's at that moment you think they're going to say that they love each other and he's going to be transformed. But then Gaston sneaks up from behind and stabs him. And the beast turns and Gaston falls and he's gone. Out of the movie, you don't have to worry about what happened at that moment. He's just gone. And then the beast falls down and he dies too. And you think, that's not how these stories are supposed to go. He's dead? Right when they were going to fall in love? Then these lasers or stars or whatever start to shoot from the sky. And his body pops up and there's this cloth there and he's resurrected. And he stands up and he's no longer a beast. He's a handsome prince who looks strangely like Fabio, if you've ever seen the movie. <laughs> the flowing hair and muscles popping out everywhere. And Belle doesn't believe it either. It's too good to be true for her at first. And then she sees in his eyes and they fall in love and they kiss. And it's a new beginning for the prince. It's a great story. It's not just a new beginning for the prince, though. It's a new beginning for this couple. And if you've seen the story for Mrs. Potts and Chip and everybody else, everybody who's involved in the story, it's a new beginning for them as well. What a great story. But only in fairy tales, right? That wouldn't really happen. What if I told you that you too could have a new beginning? Couldn't we all use a new beginning sometimes? At some point in life, things just don't go the way you expected them to go. And you can pick every area of life, maybe in a relationship, maybe with your finances, maybe with job, maybe just life in general, maybe in your relationship with God. Maybe there was one time where you thought it was going to turn out a certain way, and now it's different. Couldn't you use a new beginning? And today we're going to talk about the reality of a new beginning. See that story? It's a great story, but Walt Disney stole it, changed some details. And it comes from a real story of something that can be reality in each one of our lives. And today we're going to talk about the reality of a new beginning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, if you brought a Bible with you. In Luke chapter 24, it's the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And it's at the very end of Luke. So if you get to John, you've gone a little bit too far. But Luke chapter 24, we'll start reading in verse 36. And what this is, is a story 
about one of, not the only one, but one of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. See, what happened is Jesus Christ, God's son, came to this earth, lived a perfect life. He was sinless, fully God and fully man. But then he was murdered. And that was the Good Friday story. He was gruesomely crucified on a cross. And he died. But then on the third day, he rose. And it sounds too good to be true. It almost sounds like a fairy tale. And some people may view the resurrection story of Jesus Christ like a fairy tale. Like, it's good. I'm not offended by it. It's fine. It makes for a great story during Easter. No big deal. But here's the thing. It's not a fairy tale. It's actually historical fact. And there are many facts that support this story. But one of, not the only one, one of, I was talking with my daughter about last night, there are over 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. People then, he said, if you, if you doubt the resurrection, go talk to somebody who saw it. There are over 500 witnesses in over a 40-day time period. Jesus appeared multiple times to different groups of disciples, male, female, different people in different segments of society with the same story. This is a historical fact, far more than many of the things that we're taught in school. And what we end up reading about today is one of those appearances. And at this moment, though, these people, they're very confused because you wouldn't expect something like this to happen. It's too good to be true. And so some women have gone to the tomb, and they saw that the tomb was empty, and they come back to the disciples, and Luke says that what they said sounded like nonsense. And then Peter goes to the tomb himself, and, and when he gets to the tomb, it says that he wondered what happened. Did someone steal the body? What happened here? And then there's these two disciples that bump into Jesus on the Emmaus Road, and as soon as they realize it's Jesus, he disappears. And now they come to this room where there's a group of disciples, the 11, plus some of the women, plus these two that have come in, who knows how many people behind locked doors, according to John. And look at what it says in verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. So he appears there. And he said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, you think? thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? (laughs) They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence, showing them that he was real. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And here he is right before them. He is the promised one. And then this is what will happen after this. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So here we have the greatest news that's ever been told. The greatest, most dramatic, climactic new beginning ever. And it happens in the midst of trouble. Jesus says himself in the passage, Why are you troubled? And they think they've just seen a ghost. And you think about what they're going through. They just lost their Savior. They just lost uh, their Lord, their Master, their friend. These men have committed their lives to following Jesus Christ. And then a few days before, he's been murdered. This is the midst of trouble. 
The good news about that is this, that new beginnings often happen during times of trouble. New beginnings oftentimes happen during times of trouble. And the great news is that God's into new beginnings. And you go through all the scripture. From the time that he began, he started everything on. You see new beginning after new beginning after new beginning. You look at the story of Noah. He wipes everything out and then there's a new beginning. He starts over with everything that's there. You look at the story, one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, where Moses parts the Red Sea when he puts that staff down and God allows them to cross through. It's a new beginning for those people coming out of bondage into a new beginning. You see the people in Nineveh in the book of Jonah. Oftentimes we just talk about the prophet Jonah, but the Ninevites are given a second chance. God withholds his wrath from them because they repent of their sin and he gives them a new beginning. You go to the New Testament and you see new beginning after new beginning. Every story, every encounter with Jesus, you see people starting a new beginning with him, whether it's Matthew being called a tax collector and then writing a gospel, a new beginning. That's not where his life was headed. You see Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he's the teacher of Israel, incredibly moral man, knows the Bible well, but he's told you must be born again. You have to have a new beginning. And then in the very next chapter, you get a woman that's at the opposite end of the social spectrum. She's been divorced five times. She's now living with a guy who's not her husband. And then Jesus gives her a new beginning too. And so everybody, everywhere, it's always been God's plan for a new beginning. The resurrection, always part of God's plan. A new beginning for your life, always part of God's plan. It's real. And he offers it. You saw stories of it up on the screen before I started to preach. There are people sitting around you today that have experienced it, and maybe you need a new beginning today. To the woman in Luke chapter 7, he looks at her and he says, your sins, which are many, are forgiven. It's a new beginning. You get to the book of Revelation, and Revelation chapter 21 so there's going to be a day where there's no more suffering, there's no more pain, there's no more crime, there's no more doubts, there's none of that stuff. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. And then it says that he who's sitting on the throne in verse 5, he says, I am making everything new. Amen. He makes all things new. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the old is gone, new has come. You are a new creation when you trust Jesus Christ. He's into new beginnings. But you look at all those new beginnings. And we can also talk about how they're couched in trouble. Why with the story of Noah did God start over? It says that he regretted that he made man because they became so sinful and chose to do their own thing and he wipes the world out. And by his grace he allows Noah to still be there. That's trouble. Why is it that they have to cross the Red Sea? It's because they're pressed in on every side. Their enemy's coming, they're going to be destroyed and they've been in bondage for 400 years. That's trouble. Why is it that the Ninevites need a second chance? It's because they blew it the first time. And God's wrath is going to come on them. That's trouble. Why does Nicodemus need a second chance? It's because he thinks he's good enough on his own and he can do it with his own power and his own strength. And he's not like that woman at the well. That's trouble. What about the woman at the well? Well, her life speaks for herself, doesn't it? That's trouble. Why is it that there's going to need to be a day where there's no more suffering, there's no more pain, there's no more rape, there's no more abuse, there's no more murder, there's no more crime, there's no more disease? Why does that have to come? Because we live currently right now in a time of trouble. And that's bad news, but the good news is that new beginnings oftentimes come in times of trouble. And you see it in our passage today. In Luke chapter 24, these men are going through a difficult time of trouble. They've just lost a friend. Not just their Lord, not just their Savior, not just some theoretical, philosophical title that you can put out there, but they just lost a man who they gave up everything to follow. They just lost the one that they thought was going to free them from Roman oppression they thought that they were going to be number two, number three, number four, five, up to number 11 in the kingdom. And he was going to be the king. 
and now they just watched him get murdered. And he's gone. Have you ever lost somebody before? And you know how hard that is? It's only been three days. You're not over it in three days, are you? It's like there's shock at the beginning. And then as the days go on, the questions start to come, and the reality that they're not there starts to set in. You ever lose somebody and you want to call them? Or you lose somebody and something happens and you want to go to them? And then they're not there, and it just seems so final. They've left everything to follow Jesus, and now it seems so final. And he's not there. And Can you imagine the questions that are going through their minds? Maybe if you've lost somebody before, you know what those questions are like. I was thinking about this week, just how I've been confused sometimes when I've lost people that I loved. I was reminded of a time when I was in high school, and there was a party, and a couple friends of mine were at this party and, and mixed some stuff incorrectly and drinking and some drugs and I don't know if they did it because they were trying to get a buzz faster. I don't know if they intentionally did it, but they didn't wake up the next day. I remember talking to the guy whose house that they were at and what it was like to find them. And questions started to come on my mind as before I knew Jesus. And I, I thought, where are they now? Like, what happens? And then questions about them. What were they thinking? Like, were they just trying to have fun that one night? Or was this intentional? Did they talk about it? Or did it just happen? And then this questions start to come to God that you don't even want to say out loud because you don't know what other people will think. And you might even wonder, what does God think about me asking these questions? Try and imagine the questions the disciples are asking themselves now. So was Jesus a liar? Because we didn't see this coming. Even though he said it multiple times, they're shocked. Did Jesus betray us? Maybe he was crazy to say that stuff. But then they look at it and they think, but he healed blind people and he gave lepers new life. He gave them a new beginning. And the things he said about sin and and he was able to walk on water and and you start to lean. But does any of it matter now that he's dead? And the questions that are going through their mind. And now there's these reports that the tomb is empty. And these women are saying that he's alive. It sounds like nonsense. And now these other two disciples come in and they're saying that he's alive and they saw him, but as soon as they recognize him, he disappeared. That doesn't sound normal. And as they're having this talk behind closed doors, verse 36 happens while they were still talking about this. Jesus himself stood among them. (laughs) And then he says, peace be with you. Let me tell you what they didn't have. Peace. Look at the next verse. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. (laughs) You ever been startled by someone before? I was in my office the other day. I thought I was the last person in the office, and I'm writing something, so I'm pretty focused. I'm writing something out of a book onto a notebook pad, and I'm just thinking about that. And then Stephanie, this lady who works in our office, pops her head in my office and says, I'm leaving. <laughs> I could have sounded like a junior high girl at that moment. It was like, why? I didn't know there was somebody in here. I thought the doors were locked. And, and then these guys, all, they're talking about Jesus, and Peter's probably scratching his head like, I don't know about the Cleopas. You're kind of crazy with this story and these women. I mean, she used to have seven demons in her. Who knows? Maybe she's going back to her old one. This is strange. And then you turn and there's Jesus? It's like the understatement of the century here. They were startled and frightened. <laughs> they were freaked out. That's what it means. Of course they'd be freaked out, right? And then you look at the question that Jesus asks. Why are you troubled? Are you kidding? Like, what kind of question is that? They think they saw a ghost. Of course they're troubled. Not only that, they just lost their best friend. What kind of question is this, Jesus? And then you think about who's asking it. Not only is the answer obvious to you and to me, but this is Jesus, and he knows everything. He reads people's minds. And he's asking this question, why are you troubled? 
And I don't know what your story is. Maybe it's divorce, maybe it's deceit. Too many of you, it's abuse. For some of you, it's addictions. You saw on the screen. Some of you, it's just confusion. Can you imagine if Jesus came to you and you know that he knows everything and he says to you, why are you troubled? So let me ask you, why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your mind? Why does this happen? Jesus doesn't ask because he doesn't know the answer. In fact, Jesus doesn't ask just because he did know the answer. Jesus asked because Jesus knows trouble. And he wants you to know that he knows what you're going through. We have a high priest who can sympathize with all of our sufferings, all of our temptations, all of our struggles. That way we can go to him in our times of need, according to the book of Hebrews. See, Jesus knew trouble. He was born into trouble. Never before was there someone who knew what it was like to be in the place where there's no suffering and there's no pain and there's no crying and then to come to this place. Never before was there someone who knew what it was like to not get hungry and not get tired and then to put on skin and come here and know what it's like to get tired and to get hungry, to know what it's like to have people let you down, to know what it's like to feel the pressure. See, Jesus knew trouble. See, from his birth, there were people that tried to kill him. Read Matthew chapter 2. They killed a whole village of toddlers trying to kill Jesus. Jesus knew trouble. And some of you know various aspects of trouble and different things that have happened. Have you ever tried to help somebody and they won't receive your help? Jesus knew that trouble. He loved the Pharisees. What do you think it was like to stand before them and say, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for sinners? What do you think it was like for Jesus to preach to his home church in Luke chapter 4 and preach good news and then they want to kill him? See, Jesus knew trouble. And some of you know what it's like to be alone. (laughs) At the most climactic moment of his earthly life, all of his closest followers deserted him. He knew loneliness beyond what you or I will ever know because God will never leave us or forsake us and he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what it's like to struggle with temptation? Maybe it's a thing you keep going back to or maybe it's just something you think you deserve or it's your escape or whatever it is. We have not yet struggled the way Jesus struggled with temptation to the point where we sweat blood. You ever struggle with a decision? He says, God, if there's any other way. See, Jesus knew trouble. And he says to them, why are you troubled? And then look at the next verse. He shows them his hands and his feet. He's showing them that he knows trouble. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, this is too good to be true, he says, do you have anything to eat? I'm going to show you that I'm real. And this new beginning, it's real. The unfortunate part is it's coming during your times of trouble, man. But I know trouble. Here's my hands. Here's my feet. You see, the interesting thing is that oftentimes it's in those times of trouble that God reveals our need. You see, it's the new beginnings come during times of trouble oftentimes, but it's during those times of trouble that God reveals our need. And what is our need? Well, if we did a survey, we'd come up with all kinds of different needs that we have in this room. Relational needs, financial needs, physical needs, healing needs, you know, thought needs, all kinds of needs that would come up. But ultimately, what is our need? Interesting to me that Jesus says during this troubled time, peace be with you. It's peace. Ultimately, we need peace. When things are going smooth and everything seems peaceful, we don't recognize our needs oftentimes. we kind of cruising through life, and, and the kids are obeying, and work's going well, and the finances aren't too tight, and our relationships, we're getting along with everybody. It's a fairy tale, isn't it? That's not real life. 
there's always something somewhere. Even when there's great things happening, there's other stuff that's tough. And when that stuff starts to bubble up, whether it's a lack of peace with God, a lack of peace with others, sometimes even a lack of peace with ourselves, we start to recognize our need. And we've got needs that we can't meet. And that need is peace. Do you have a need for peace? Peace with God? Peace with others? Peace with yourself? It's a recognizing of that need. What is peace, though? That's a big question. What is peace? Does it just mean that all circumstances go smooth? We know that's not it because the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that believers can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so that means it wouldn't make sense to the world that we would have peace in the midst of crazy circumstances, in the midst of a time when most people wouldn't have peace. And so what is peace? Well, we know that it's the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, we're told it's a byproduct of living according to faith, living by the promises of God, making our decisions based on the promises that we already know are true, the hundreds and hundreds of promises that we have in Scripture. So what is peace? Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at this verse, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2. He says that we who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. The prince of peace, that is peace. Jesus Christ is peace. For he himself is our peace, he's our need. He's the one that we need and we don't realize it until we realize we have a need that we can't meet. And so we need someone outside of us to meet that need and Jesus Christ did it and the way that he did it was he took upon your sins, all your problems, all your trials, all the difficult things on the cross But he didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the dead, which means he has victory. Now he's able to offer you life. But it's not until those times of trouble, oftentimes, that we realize our need. And he gives us a new beginning. Like a guy that goes to our church, he's one of our members, Butch. He and I were talking about his story this week, and he told me that I could share it with you. And the way his story goes is that he lived a life where he really had life by the tail. Self-made man, felt like he was invincible, actually said the phrase to me when we were talking about it, kind of bulletproof. And because he felt like he was bulletproof, he made decisions that way. But things seemed to be going well in his life, the first 30 years of his life. Had a great wife, wonderful wife, had a couple kids that were great, nice house, good job. And between the ages of 30 and 48 years old, he became what he referred to as a functional alcoholic. So he'd still go to work and kept his job and did all those things. Everything was in line and he had it under control. And he said that he would drink on a weekly basis between one and two gallons of vodka. That's a lot of vodka. And that was his thing. That was his escape. That's what, you know, in those moments you feel like, I deserve this. And for him, that's what it was. And for us, some of us, it's different stuff. Maybe you shop your way out of it. Maybe it's other people that you use in order to make yourself feel better. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's you just ignore the problem and allow it to build, and then you burst, and it's your anger. Maybe that's your thing. We've got all kinds of different stuff that we do, and for Butch, it was alcohol. He said, but for the last two years of that time period, between the time he was 30 and 48 years old, he wasn't a functional alcoholic. He was a functional drunk, and it got worse, and all the things that went with that, debauchery, deceit, affairs, all that stuff, and he lost everything he had. He lost his wife. He lost his kids wouldn't talk to him. He almost lost it. He didn't quite lose his job. He was getting close to bankruptcy. He was living in a shack. And he said, providentially, one day he bumped into a friend. And his friend asked a simple question, how are you doing? And if I ask you, how are you doing? You probably say, good, fine. It doesn't matter what happened yesterday. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. That's what we say. He was doing so poorly, he was honest. 
Can you imagine that? And he just unloaded all of his stuff. Started talking about the decisions he was making. Talked about how much he was drinking. Talked about all the things he had lost. And his friend said back to him, Butch, does that sound like a sane person to you? I think about that question. I told Butch when we were talking about it, I love that he had the guts to ask that question because that's not how you get people to like you, (laughs) asking questions like that. But he cared about him so much that he asked that question. And it struck Butch that he had a need. And he knew he needed to stop drinking. And he knew he couldn't fix it himself. And so his friend invited him to AA. He didn't even know his friend was involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's anonymous. So he invited him to this AA meeting, and a couple days later they were going to go. He said he got down on his knees and he just prayed, God, help me stop drinking. And he believed in God, but God was never really a part of his life up until that moment. Next day at the AA meeting, he stood up and said what you say at one of those meetings. My name is Butch, and I'm an alcoholic. He said as soon as that lie was exposed, God took from him the desire to drink. It's been 15 years this May since he's had a drink. He's been sober. And he said it was at that moment that God met him. And later he'd place his faith in Jesus Christ and all of his sins going on the cross. But a new beginning started at that moment. In the time of trouble, he realized his need. In the time of trouble, he had a new beginning. It was in that time of trouble that he turned to Christ. And God had a wonderful plan for him. And he's got a wonderful plan for you. And it's always been his plan for a new beginning. He had a wonderful plan for the disciples. They would reach the entire world. They would come in the midst of this time of trouble. They would realize their need for greater dependence upon him. The apostle Paul tells us that he came to the place in his life where he despaired of life itself. But it was so that his faith would grow deeper. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, if you want to check it out on your own. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 says that God doesn't waste any of this stuff. He uses the sufferings, the difficult times, to refine our faith. Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 says that when you trust Christ as your Savior, you're part of God's family, you're co-heirs with Christ, and you share with him not only in his glory but in his suffering. The problem is we just want the glory, we don't want the suffering, but the suffering comes. And he doesn't waste it, so realize what he's doing. And he's showing you his need, and his need is for him, and he wants to offer you a new beginning. It's the very thing he did in Butch's life. In Butch's life, he reconciled his relationship with his kids. And he was at a meeting with the kids, a family gathering together. And his ex-wife was there. He asked her to go out on a date about seven years after he got sober. They went out on a date. And that night, she told him that she was not interested in getting remarried to anybody, diamonds, any of that stuff. Six months later, they stood on a beach in Ocean Isle, renewed their vows. The same day they had been married years before. New beginning. And God had a plan for Butch to use him to impact this world, even impact you today as I tell his story. He's got a plan for you. A wonderful plan, but it requires a new beginning. And new beginnings require a response. That's our third point. New beginnings require a response. And Jesus makes that clear in what he says to the disciples here. After he eats the fish, he says to them in verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. You didn't get it then, but now it's starting to make sense, right? Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. That's the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them about things that were written hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before they actually happened. And how he fulfilled those things to a T. So this is what is written. The Christ, the promised one, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that's him. And he's standing there three days later saying these things to them. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached. In his name, in the name of Jesus, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's the new beginning. That's the response. The response is repentance. The new beginning is forgiveness. 
Forgiveness, with forgiveness comes a cleansing. It comes a fresh start. It comes a do-over. What happens at that moment is that everything that you've done, everywhere you've been, it's washed away. You become a new creation. You get a new beginning. What happens at that point is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The guilt is gone. The fear is gone. All that stuff is gone. And now you're new in Christ. It's a new beginning. But in order to have that new beginning, you have to have repentance. So what is that? It's a simple word. And it simply means this. Turning from your way of life to Christ. Turning from doing whatever it is that you've been doing, whatever's been ruling your life, to having Jesus Christ sit on the throne of your life, that he saves you. Your greatest need is him. Your greatest need is peace with God. Your greatest need is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the reality of a new beginning. And so do you have a new beginning with Jesus? Let's pray. Everybody with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I'm going to spend a couple moments in reflection. I just want to ask you a couple questions. Is everybody here having your heads bowed and your eyes closed? Nobody peeking around. How many of you in here would say you need a new beginning with Jesus? We all need a new beginning from time to time. I see people raising their hand already. You see, the ultimate new beginning comes when you start a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the way you start a relationship with Jesus Christ is you recognize you have a need And that's a need for a savior. And you don't have a need for a savior until you recognize you have sinned. You've gone your own way. You've done your own thing. And maybe today you recognize you have a need for a savior. You have a need for a savior to save you from your sins so that you can experience that forgiveness. What you need to do is you need to repent. That means turn from your way. Turn from your way of living life on your own. Maybe you feel like Butch and you're a self-made person. You kind of do your own thing. Maybe you're even religious. Maybe you're really moral like Nicodemus. We need to turn from that and turn to Jesus Christ. He's the one who offers the new beginning. Or maybe you're not really moral and you feel like you're too bad. And you need to turn from that and turn to Jesus Christ. doesn't mean clean your act up. That means he's already taken care of your act when he died on the cross for your sins. And he wants to give you a new life and he wants to give you a fresh start. He wants to give you a new beginning today. And if you want that new beginning, with everybody here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, will you, will you pray this prayer with me? And trust Jesus as your Savior. And you can pray words like this in your heart as I pray them out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, I have a need. And my need is you. I've sinned. I know I'm not perfect. And I believe your son Jesus Christ was. And he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that. And he rose again, and I want to receive new life. I want to receive a new beginning through him. And I ask, in Jesus' name, for a new beginning with you, God. I ask Jesus to be my Savior. And if you just prayed that prayer in your heart, or maybe even out loud, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you right now. It's a significant decision. Would you just raise your hand? If that's true for you. I see people moving around. It's got a lot of light in here, so if you could raise your hand high, that would be great. If you're in theater, I see some people raising their hand. If you're in theater 14, you can raise your hand. There's some people on the response team that are up there that would love to talk with you. I'm going to tell you before you leave today, some of you raise your hand real quickly on your, in your seats. People that are on the response team have a gift they'd love to give you. They'd love to give you a Bible. They'd love to help you grow in that relationship with Christ. So you please see them before you leave. I'll tell you who they are when we're done praying. But let me pray for you right now.
Father God, I, I thank you so much for people placing their faith in you. We know all of heaven rejoices. I pray, God, that the heaven would just be a bash today of people coming to know you all around the world. I thank you for those here at Southbridge that have trusted you as Savior. I pray, God, that this would be a true new beginning for them, that you would give them a fresh start, that life would change at this moment. Just like for Butch, when he stood in that meeting and acknowledged his sin, God, that as they acknowledge their sin before you and need for a Savior, you'd transform their lives. This would be a significant moment for them. And God, I pray as each one of us that know you as Savior, desire to walk with you, many of us need a new beginning as well. I don't want to pray for you. Some of you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you'd acknowledge you need a new beginning today too. For whatever reason, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. And Father God, I pray for those that have been walking with you for whatever amount of time, but they need a fresh start, a new beginning today. And God, we know that your mercies are new every day. And we know that you can give us that fresh start. Will you please, by the power of your spirit, do that very thing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.